One of the great parlor games in federal procurement is adding up the number of award protests every year. But because of the way the Government Accountability Office compiles the numbers, it's hard to understand the real patterns. This is the topic of a recently published paper. We get a summary from Smith Pactor McWhorter attorney Joseph Petrillo. And Joe, I tried to read the paper, but you lawyers keep everything behind a bar association paywall. But you have downloaded and compiled some of the findings for us. And what's this all about? Well, this is the result of a study of GAO bid protest data and an analysis of how useful the data is, which was published in the Public Contract Law Journal, and it's called Data Scarcity in Bid Protests, Problems and Proposed Solutions. And the author is a third-year law student at George Washington University named Will Dawson. And he's done a very good job, I think, of looking at the data, doing an analysis of it, and providing, more interestingly, some ideas about how to improve the system to get better policy outcomes from better data. There are some well-known inadequacies in the GAO bid protest statistics. First of all, the statistics count protests, not protested solicitations or even protesters. So what that means is you may very well have amended protests filed by a protester, and each of those is counted as a separate protest. So it's not at all uncommon for a protester to amend its protest after reviewing the agency report. And there may be other amendments as well. So we start from a number that's not really very helpful. In other words, there's double counting. Yeah, multiple counting, double, triple. And then sometimes there are four protests filed uh, by a single protester in the course of a protest. And then, of course, on top of that, the issue that there are maybe multiple protesters filing protests on an individual solicitation. So we don't really have a good handle on how many solicitations are being protested at GAO. In addition to that, the other main problem is that GAO tends to bundle dissimilar things in the same category that they're reporting on. For instance, dismissals. Protests are listed as having been dismissed a certain number each year, but those include both protests that GAO dismisses as untimely or legally inadequate, and also protests that are voluntarily withdrawn by the protester, which I guess looks at the administrative report, says, ah, we're not going to win this one, and pulls it back. So those are two very, very dissimilar things with different policy implications. Right. So therefore, you can't really draw safe conclusions from the yearly data that comes out. Right. And there are other things that aren't counted at all. So because of this, From time to time, folks have done an analysis of this data and gone into the actual decisions and tried to tease out some more information. Very good report in that area was done by Dan Gordon. My colleague Dan Ramish did another. But Will Dawson did his own. He did a deep dive into GAO protests and data. And I think he found some interesting things when he looked at the actual protest decisions from 2000 through 2020. He looked at 26 categories of why protests were sustained, and three of those categories accounted for half of the sustained protest. They were unreasonable application of the evaluation criteria, including situations where the protester was treated in a disparate or unfair fashion. Secondly, war decisions based on reasons not stated in the solicitation. You've got evaluation criteria, you've got requirements in the solicitation, but the decision is based on something else. And thirdly, there's an important issue relating to the award, 
but there's no support in the record for it. For example, the awarding official has advice coming up from advisory boards and panels in the evaluation, doesn't take the advice, but doesn't explain why or doesn't do it in an adequate fashion. So those three reasons account for fully half of the sustained protests in this 20-year period. There are some other interesting things that he shows. For instance, 24% of protests that allege an organizational conflict of interest are sustained, and that's a very high rate of uh, sustains. We're speaking with Joe Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. And so there's one unifying theme to those causes of protest sustainment, and that seems to be overuse of human discretion by contracting officers. These are not technical issues. These are discretionary issues. Yeah, they're discretionary issues where the discretion either isn't explained or it isn't grounded in the rules of the protest process. I think you're right. That's a good observation. So this is the type of data, if it were accumulated and recorded on a regular basis over a long period of time, would help better inform policy decisions. How did Dawson get the data in that case? In this case, he was able to look at the actual protest decisions. He ran a computer program he wrote that analyzed those decisions, and he got results from that. But what we don't have data on are situations where the GAO doesn't issue a written decision, and a lot of dismissals aren't published in terms of the reason for them. And we've got you know a big gap in the record there. Was he um, able to FOIA that gap and, and get hold of those documents? That information is available from GAO. Those are publicly available on the GAO website. And being a student, he'd probably have access to computer legal research resources like Lexis that would uh, provide that information. So basically, he accumulated what is out there, but has never been compiled in exactly that lens, so to speak. Exactly. But even with that, there are lots of data elements that aren't available. A couple of years ago, Congress required DOD to conduct a study of bid protests of DOD procurements. And it engaged RAND Corporation, a highly respected research organization, to answer those. And RAND could only find enough data to answer five of the 14 questions posed by Congress. Could not even get the data to answer nine of the questions. So that, I think, shows that the lack of this data is hindering policy decisions. It's hindering decisions by agencies about how to reorganize their evaluation process, how to train their personnel. It's hindering decisions by protesters about what protests to bring. Is the methodology and the code that was developed by the student, Mr. Dawson, is that available? Did he publish that? He did, in fact, publish his entire program as an appendix to his article. And I I praise the editors for including it, because for those who can understand such things, it's probably uh, useful information. Yes, somebody Um, could probably clip it and then charge the government a million dollars to do a study against it. (laughs) Well, I hope not. But Dawson proposes a public disclosure of a 15-item data set to provide better data for policy formation and other decision-making. And if you look at the information he's proposing, the sources that are available that he discusses, All but four or five of those can be drawn from other data sources and accumulated from GAO and agency data sources and things like that. And then there would have to be some additional data entry and and analysis for four or five of those items. But it doesn't seem like by any means an overwhelming task. 
So perhaps this will spur the policymakers out there to, uh, or maybe Congress, to uh, to move ahead and and get this data accumulated. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Mr. Dawson is right in line with the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking, which is the law of the land and also the policy of the government. Well, when you know what the situation is and you know what you're trying to achieve, you're probably going to get a better result. Interesting. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.